I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. Sans Pants Radio. Australia's most biased podcast network. Hey everyone, welcome to Bookish. I'm George Dimorellis. This is a show where we ask you what's your story and what does it say about you. Uh, with me today we have radio host and podcaster Gavin Miller. How you doing, Gavin? Good, thank you, George. Thank you for having me. How's your day going? How's Corona treating you, all that stuff? We're, we're now at the being out and really enjoying being in, in cafes again stage of the pandemic, which is, you know, I'm, I'm really loving that, although it has reminded me when you go out for breakfast like the second or third time in a week and you go, oh, yeah, right, 50 bucks for eggs on toast. Why am I doing that? Let's eat at home more. <laughs> everyone everyone has collectively realised that maybe all these boomers saying we pay too much for avocado might have had a point. Yeah, but it is great. I mean, it's such a nice feeling. You know what I'm loving too? I mean, I wish I'd have bought shares in fake lawn because all over Melbourne at the moment there's just fake lawn going up outside cafes everywhere. And it's That's a, true, yeah. It's yeah. a really nice thing to see cafes that are starting to literally spill out into the street wherever you go. I just think it's actually making Melbourne look really interesting when you go for a walk, ah, you know? It's so good. And, like, I know it's it's the most cliche thing <laughs> and we're all going to say it constantly, but you know what? I'll, I'll admit it. Yes, it feels so European. It's fantastic. <laughs> it's just it's got a real European vibe. I know. The, you've got the uh, piazzas and all that stuff. It's fantastic. So I love it. Although if you've ever been down to Oakley, this is some deep cut Melbourne talk. You would have seen it there. They've had they did that for ages. They reconverted a street so it was actually all plaza. It's and it's the best vibe ever. I don't understand how it's not everywhere. I actually lived in Oakley for a while, so yes. Oh wow! Ah, postpasareti yinete. What what you said? Yeah. <laughs> so to unpack the two parts, I guess you're a radio host uh, for Gold. FM. Um, you do the afternoon shift, so people driving home, they'll be listening to your... They, ca- well, they, they call it home. drive, technically. So I'm on uh, 3 three p.m. until 6 p.m., um, and mm-hmm. that sort of changes around sometimes, depending on when other people are away and stuff. But, yes, I get to do the shift where um, I can meet someone for breakfast, I can meet someone for dinner. My work doesn't get in the way of either of those things. So I've always considered it the plum time to be on the radio as that late afternoon time. So That is actually basically perfect. Talk to most people who, you know, especially do breakfast radio, the, the idea of sleeping in until you wake up is just so foreign to them that it's just a it's just a gift to not have to get up that early, you know? Yeah, yeah, I've, I've heard uh, those horror stories. Just how are you meant to have fun? <laughs> you gotta, although, although I've kind of gone that way as well. I'm just like, I'm really big... I'm becoming more and more obsessed with the idea of just finishing every night at like 9 p.m. and going home to bed. I think that's like, we need to bring it in, we need to institute it. It's just the way the world should be in the future. Yeah, I'm 48. I just turned 48. So um, I'm now at the, oh, are we not doing anything tonight? Can we go to bed and watch TV on the iPad at 9.30? Stage of my life, you know? Okay. Well, look, to be honest, that's starting pretty late. Could <laughs> be a lot of people. No, it sounds like you had a bit of a party time when you were a bit younger. <laughs> no, yeah, sometimes it was 10.30 or even 11 before I'd do that. Yeah. All right, all right. We'll, we'll, we'll get into that. <laughs> that's, so that's one side. Actually, so do you get, and I guess maybe you might not want to say this in a podcast, but uh, 
I love gold in terms of like it's nice to always turn around and have the songs, but at the same time, do you get a bit bored of like the fact that it is fairly repetitive in terms of? I feel like in one week you're going to hear the same songs almost, if you know what I mean. Well, I listen to it more than any other person would would you know would listen to it by virtue of the fact that you know it's it's my job, and the thing that I learned how to do a while ago now probably about 10 or 15 years ago, I suddenly woke up one day and went, oh, I'm not doing it for me. I'm doing it for other people. And they're not in the room like I am five days a week listening to the songs. They're just jumping in their car going home from work and it's making them happy. So if it's making them happy, then that's good. So the music I would listen to, there is a lot of crossover in the music that I would listen to at home and the music I listen to at work. But there's also... I mean, take Elton John as an example. You know, you'd play the the hits on the radio because that's what makes sense. That's listen. If I owned the radio station, I wouldn't change a thing about the way they format it. I think. I think. Mm-hmm. Um, and I understand when people say that it's it's repetitive, but it's supposed to be. It's designed that way. You know. So. Yeah. And I totally respect the process of the people who do that. Having said that, I do for my own sanity's sake not listen to Brian Adams' Summer of Bloody '69 when I go home from work. <laughs> Like I, that's what I like. That's what I mean. Which all, like all radio presenters have that, especially like even like modern like people who do current music, they get they get that. But just like for a, a two month period, they'll just hear a song just drain. But for you, that'd be just some which you've heard every day for, for however many years now you've been doing radio. I'll tell you one. I'll just give you one. Every time I hear the intro of Starships, we built this city. I dive for the volume to turn it down. But. I know that there's thousands potentially of people driving, you know, in their cars at that time who are like, oh, awesome, Starship. So I'm not there for me. I'm there to do it for them. <laughs> if it's making them happy, that's fine. But to be really honest with you, if I never heard Starships, we built this city again, I'd be okay with that. That's, I get that, I, that, that is a specific one. And I respect because I do get... It's like not good enough to hear that many times if you want to risk it that way, I feel like. Yeah, and there are other songs that when you hear them enough times, you start to notice stuff in them. So... Um, but I actually use that on, on on the radio. So, for example, I mentioned the other day how um, Bon Jovi's You Give Love a Bad Name, when you listen to it enough times, you start to realise how daft the backing vocals are. Now, go back and listen to that song or the next time you, you sort of hear it by accident or whatever. When he sings You Give Love a Bad Name, the band goes, Bad Name! And it's the funniest thing ever once you start zeroing in on it, just how daft their backing vocals are. And that also accounts for Wanted Dead or Alive. Every time he sings Wanted, it's Wanted. It's just the most meat-headed backing vocals ever. But I kind of like that about it, and it gives me scope to actually play with that idea on the radio. So, yeah, there's actually an advantage to hearing songs over and over again, you know? You're making lemonade. <laughs> that's what it sounds like right there. Um, nice. Okay, so that's one side. And the other side now, uh, and I'm, I'm super interested in this, uh, and you are in the right podcast for it, your, your, your podcast that you do, it's called uh, is it The Empty Page? The Empty Page, yeah, because the idea mm-hmm. being that there's nothing more terrifying for a writer than looking at an empty page, and I wanted to speak to people who fill those empty pages. So it's basically my lockdown project. I... Um, uh, I bought one of these little, I'm sitting in front of it now, these little, um, you may have one yourself, the Rode Procaster desk, the one with the little lights on it. Have you got that one as well? Something like that. No, mine's a Yamaha mixer. I, I already had this sort of uh, equipment that I bought um, um, earlier in the year and I was kind of thinking, well, what is my podcast idea? What am I going to do? And then I thought, well, I might as well just do something that's completely different from what I do for a living but is something that I'm really passionate about, which is 
talking to writers about how they do what they do because uh, I totally respect the craft. I'm one of those people who's got a lot of half-finished sort of bits and pieces. I have had some stuff published along the way, but mostly most of my kind of writing life is a hard drive full of unrealised ideas. And so I wanted to talk to people who, who finished stuff, basically, was the starting point. And then when I started contacting publishers and and sort of getting the ball rolling and, and people were sending me books and I started to realise just how out of touch I was with how many great Australian writers there are at the moment and I wanted to stretch myself into reading things I wouldn't normally read. So I've read more crime fiction this year than the rest of my life put together and I'm really happy about that because, um, a random example, Chris Hammer, Trust, is a great book. Uh, Benjamin Stevenson has written a great book and I've talked to him. Uh, Kyle Perry, The Bluffs, another great book and I've spoken to him as well. It's given me a chance to read stuff I wouldn't normally read um, necessarily and and then talk to the people who, you know, wrote the books. And not only am I getting a lot of inspiration myself, but are hopefully people who are listening to it are, are hopefully getting something out of it as well. So it's been a, a just such a pleasurable process and I've been able to do the whole thing on stage four lockdown when that was a thing in Melbourne. We're not anymore, thankfully. But even right in the middle of lockdown, I was still able to sort of, you know, get this project sort of up and running and and keep it going. So, uh, so yeah, it's been it's been really, really um, uh, fun and and a really good learning experience for me to, you know, produce something myself at home. I mean, it's pretty simple the way I'm from a production point of view. Um, I think mm-hmm. most of the work is in the um, the actual. And this is the thing I, you know, <laughs> when I kind of leapt into this, I don't think I kind of stopped and thought. Yeah, you're going to have to read a lot of books. You're going to have to set a lot aside at time, uh, time aside to read a lot of books. But stage four lockdown, it's all we had. So you could be in trouble now, though. No, well, it's still going. I mean, I'm I'm reading a book at the moment that is a like a World War One fiction based in France, like not the sort of stuff I would usually read. It's uh, the Champagne War by Fiona McIntosh, and I'm talking to her. I'm recording an interview with her next week for the podcast, and that's a perfect example of. I wouldn't usually pick something like this up and read it, but now I'm, like, really appreciating the way she tells a story and I can't wait to talk to her because she's written dozens of books and does this for a living. And yeah. I, don't, I don't know about you, I'm just super impressed with anybody who manages to turn writing into a living. And can I tell you the common thread I've found in the, the writers that I've spoken to? Mm-hmm. They keep bloody writing. And I know that sounds like really obvious advice, but it seems to be the common thread is writers write. They don't sit around talking about it. They're not at the pub telling their friends about it. Well, they might be, but they write. They get the work done. Do they have, like, is there a set amount of time they put aside every day? Like, uh, is there anything you've drawn from that conclusion? Well, everyone's different, and that's another fascinating thing. You know, I've talked to uh, Jeff Apter, for example, who's a brilliant music writer about his, uh, his George Young book, and he told me that he plans what he's going to do. He knows what he's going to write for every workday, I think he said up to three months in advance. And he's got like a 100-page document of this day I will work on this and the next day I will work on this. And then I've talked to other writers. Okay, that's... And then I've talked to other writers who don't know how their story's going to finish when they start writing it. And Mm. so Chris Hammer said that. He's like, well, no one can pick the endings of my book because I don't know when I start writing it. So it's, it's, it's wildly different. Uh, how mm. people actually go about the, the routine of it. The common thread seems to be they keep going. I don't know if you've ever found this on any creative project when you, when you start thinking about it, the first little sort of flourish of having the idea and writing notes about it and maybe writing the first chapter, that's really fun and relatively easy and then the hard work starts and that's where it can be easy to go, oh, yeah, I'll get back to that one day and next thing you know you wake up and it's 10 years later and, you you know, you just... 
rummaging through your hard drive and go, oh, yeah, that book I was going to write about that, right, because, you know, I don't know about anyone else, but that's how it works for me continuously. There's nothing like an initial idea because you don't have to put any effort in and you can imagine how amazing it is. <laughs> like it's, in, it's all upside. Like as in you're just being crazy. You're like, ah, you're picturing the awards you're going to win. You're picturing like, how am I going to explain to these people how it was my first book and it was this brilliant? I don't know how, but I'm just going to be like, look, it just came through me. <laughs> I was just a, a servant of the muse. You know, so it's like New Year's <laughs> Day. I've got a New Year's Day theory around that. That I love New Year's Day because that's the day I sit and I uh, will plan for the year and I'll, I'll set goals and I'll write a little mind map. You know, I've started doing that the last few years, and I love that process because I think it's really healthy. But I also love it because I don't have to do anything that day. All I've got to do is dream about it. The actual doing comes yeah. later, and the doing is hard. The dreaming is easy. To go on a more serious tangent, like as in that's the joy of youth, <laughs> all this possibility, and then all you do as you get older is just cut away all of those dreams and hopes and be like, oh, okay, well, no, 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 no. It's not possibilities anymore. Maybe if you're a writer, it's sort of the opposite is true to an extent because you've had more life experience. So as a 48-year-old, I can definitely write with more, if I'm writing about a topic, I can do it with a little bit more experience behind me than I could when I was 28. Oh, 100%. To go separately to unlimited potential, but in terms of developing skill and understanding and stuff, that is the plus side of getting a bit more experience and stuff. You're able to unpack that more. Okay, actually, so firstly, do you read each book that you then get the author on to talk about? Oh, I would never interview an author without reading the book. Like, I would just never do that because I would consider it the same as for, for my work. If I'm, if I'm interviewing, let's say, random example, James Rain about his new album, I'm going to listen to the album before I interview him. I would just consider it so rude to not listen to the album. And even if we're not playing those songs on the station, I want him to know that I've taken the time to appreciate what he's put together. And then you get a better interview as a result because the person you're talking to knows that you care enough. Yeah, you've put in some effort. Like, who's this? What's this? I, I wouldn't. I, I just wouldn't um, uh, interview an author and, and try and fudge it and not not having read read their book. Oh, I'm not saying to make it up. Like that would be risky. But uh, I just did. I guess if the show is specifically about that book. Yeah, yeah. Your book's yeah. about what? Um, yeah, yeah, yeah. What, one thing I do do that, and I had a funny conversation with a guy called uh, Nick Place about this topic. Nick is the co-author of a book called Stalin's Wine Cellar. Um, and it's a, oh. a story about a guy who was a Sydney wine merchant who, long story short, went to uh, Georgia, as in Europe, not as in Atlanta, and uh, mm -hmm. um, basically accessed this wine that may or may not be Stalin's wine cellar. I'm giving you a really, really basic version of the story. So there's two people I could have spoken to. There was the guy who it actually happened to, whose story it was, but I said, no, for the purposes of this podcast, I want to talk to the writer. I want to talk to the writer they brought in to tell the story. And that guy's name mm -hmm. is Nick Place. Loved the chat with him. So when I'm talking to Nick, uh, I kind of go, look, I don't want to give the details of the story away that you as the author don't want given away. So rather than me tell you what the story is of the book, do you want to share what the story of the book is? And he goes, so all I'm hearing is you didn't read the book. <laughs> he was kidding, of course. Uh, <laughs> I did read the book and he knows I read the book. Mm -hmm. But That is a classic way. What do you think about what it means? <laughs> but if you listen to any of the, the, the episodes of The Empty Page, I'm really careful to not go, oh, right, so, you know, it was the twin that did it or, you know what I mean? Yeah, these, they're coming on possibly a little bit to promote the book as well, so you don't want to be spoiling the book. Don't want to be on there. ruining the book for the reader or, you know, making the author angry because I've just given away a major plot point at the end. You know, once someone's locked themselves away for long enough to read the book, if you ask them, to give you the elevator pitch for the book, it's sitting there in their brain ready to go. They can give you that that 60-second distilled, you know, much like the back of the book, the, just, just enough detail to know what the premise is and where they're going with it without knowing exactly mm -hmm. where it ends up. 
because I never want to mm -hmm. kind of tread all over that as well, you know. I'm new to no, talking to authors, so I'm kind of trying to figure it out as I go along, you know. Yeah, well, look, you know, it sounds like you're picking up a lot and doing all right so far, and you've lined up some good names as well, so uh, that's great. And and speaking of the good names you've lined up, which relates then to the book you've chosen today, you've got Craig, you had Craig Sylvie on as well. Well, uh, yes, and and Craig, um, Craig Sylvie's Honeybee, 100%, and I told him this at the beginning of the chat we had, my favourite book that I've read for the process of doing this podcast. Um, I've, I've read a lot of books that I've really enjoyed, but Honey Bee is the book that just made me, made me want to take the rest of the day off and just finish the story. I just could not wait to, to sort of dive back into the world that Craig's created. And the narrative is um, through the eyes of a 14-year-old called Sam. Again, I don't want to give too much away. I think you can give away the first act... It's going to be relevant to our discussion, so I think you can do that. Um, so it starts with, with Sam's um, uh, on a pedestrian bridge over in Perth. This is another thing I love about the way Craig Sylvie writes. I spent a lot of years living in Perth. I love Perth and I love the fact that he writes really specifically about different suburbs. And as I said to him, you know, when you move your story from Midland to Scarborough, anyone who's lived in Perth knows exactly what you're talking about. But for anyone who hasn't, you haven't sort of ruined their day or anything. They've just got to kind of imagine it, you know? So anyway... You must like Tim Winton then. <laughs> exactly. Uh, so at the beginning of the book, Sam's on a pedestrian bridge about to jump, sees someone else who's about to do the same thing. They don't jump, they strike up a friendship. That's where the story takes off. And Craig's got this amazing way of structuring the story to just drag you in to want to know what's happening next. And I love his dialogue. I love the way he, he gives different characters completely different ways of speaking and it all just rings true with me. It just really it just really got me. It was just really one of those things. And also, too, I don't think I was reading enough fiction before I started doing this podcast. I will dive into rock biographies before anything. So when Stuart Coop released his Paul Kelly book, I'm like, yep, I need to read it straight away. And I've done an episode with Stuart and he was great. Same deal with Jimmy Barnes. Um, loved his latest book, spoke to him about that. Get Barnesy on. Yeah, I, 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 I'll read those books all day and all night. You know, Elton John's biography last year, me, loved it. Absolutely just tore through it. And I kind of realised I'm not really reading enough fiction. So that's what this podcast has got me doing. And of all the fiction I've read, Honeybee is the one that has just absolutely reminded me that I need to, I need to read more fiction. Because, as Craig pointed out in the in the chat, if you if, if he does a good job of the story, the person reading it will almost forget their own identity for a while and just climb inside the story and just live completely inside that world. And what's more healthy than that when you're reading a book during stage four lockdown? That's true. Sense of escape. That's a that's a very valid point. It was as far um, I as think... I was allowed to travel. Was the travel I did in my mind over to Perth in the setting of that book? You know. Yeah, as a as a teenager. I, I, actually, first, just just on a side note, best rock biography ever. If you had to pick one, geez, that Elton one would have to come close. Um, Is that Elton John? Me? Yeah, actually, yeah? I would, I would I'd say love to that. Read that. I would say that. I mean, okay. I'm a massive Elton fan, and just the fact that he wrote that himself, and you know, it's very much written in his style. It's very much like he's standing there, you know, making jokes and stuff next to you. And I, I really enjoy all the, you know, there's a story in there about a party Elton threw in the seventies where Elton was so coked up that George Harrison got him aside and went, man, you need to settle down. So you know that you've got a raging drug issue when a beetle gets you aside and goes, dude, you need to calm down. You know, I can't do a George voice. Yeah. yeah, It's funny you're saying that because you did mention how you like how the, each character had its own true voice that rang true in uh, Honeybee. And you're, you're loving the fact that Elton's got his voice ringing true in his book, which is actually probably a good part of autobiographies where you'd always be able to capture that if they're done well. 
they're going to be in the author's voice. So. I think that's something that you learn to do on the radio that I'm learning to do as a writer or trying to learn how to do as a writer is, is speak slash write in your own voice. You know, when you start out on the radio, I was 15 when I started on the radio. I was, like, oh, I was just terrified and talking like this. It takes a long time <laughs> to just kind of relax into it enough to just talk like a human being would talk. You know, and not, yeah, yeah. You know, so I went from that stage to the I'm a radio announcer now stage. Um, and then, you know, you learn to kind of just relax and relax and relax and just kind of get to the point where you're talking like a normal human being. I think there's an equivalent in writing where, you know, Craig Sylvie's a great example, just people who have this fantastic style that is so uniquely them um, that they've managed to nurture. I think it's, you know, I think it's like a magic trick. So that's why I'm so fascinated to find out how people do it. Yeah, the ability to take what's going on inside your head <laughs> and put it out there in a way where people can actually grasp it, which usually involves being both as natural as possible, but based on the experience of how to represent yourself well, I think those two do need to match up. You can't just be like anyone being natural. It's like that can still be clunky and awkward because that's just have, they haven't learned how to express themselves perfectly yet. So I always feel like it is a combination of the two. And I've got a, a draft of a terrible novel, just terrible. No one should ever see this. That is, you know, sitting in the in the in the hard drive, full of unrealized ideas. And the thing that I realized in the process of writing that draft that I really need some help with is writing believable dialogue. As as I read the draft back, it's like no one talks like that. Whereas Craig Sylvie can write incredibly believable dialogue and do it in a completely different style for all these different characters. So so that's another thing I'm just enjoying, not only reading the books and sort of, you know, I guess in the back of my head kind of, you know, learning by observing how other people do it, but then when you actually get to talk to these people and directly say, you know, said to Craig, it feels like I'm asking you how you do a magic trick, but how do you do a magic trick? You know, how do you do your dialogue? Yeah. And it was fascinating because he, you know, he, I mean, I, I don't want to paraphrase him too much, but he was basically saying that they, these people live inside his head and they talk to him all day and he's very, you know, he walks around while he's writing a novel with these living, breathing people in his head all the time. And I, th- I think that's great. No, that is, that's a, and I think, yeah, the skill is being able to translate that down onto the page and uh, capture it. Well, yeah, dialogue's weird because even if you try to put in too much of the natural speak, that can sometimes come across strange because, like, in natural conversation, you might say like and um and you know a lot, but, like, you don't put that into dialogue, but you need to somehow capture the person who is the type of person that does that without someone sitting there being like, man, he said he's written like about 500 times. I'm sick of seeing this word. So that's the other skill, I think, as well. That translates to editing radio interviews as well. So, you know, if you're talking to someone and you've got to edit one bit to another bit and they say, um, in between bits, sometimes leaving the um in there is what's going to make it sound natural because people do pause and, you know, maybe look up and go um before they, they move on. So sometimes... From an audio point of view, you'd leave it in. So you're right. Why wouldn't you from a writing point of view? Thanks for that. Good lesson. I'm going to carry that with me. I like that. Sometimes. But, yeah, not all the time. That's the whole point, though, even though... Well, the no, problem with your book, Gavin, is it's too full of ums. Yeah. How, a whole draft. Do you want to give any any summary of the book, actually? It's a story about a guy who starts out as, like, the king of the whiz, like, Carl Sanderland's, like, king of radio and ends up outside a jewellery store at Galleria Morley over in Perth with the little microphone going, gold chains, $10, and it's his kind of... So it's a fall from grace story, basically. Back during a time I was try, probably trying to exercise certain feelings I had about certain management I'd worked with uh, over in Perth, <laughs> and I went, ooh, I'm going to turn this into a story. There might be something in there, but I doubt it. 
Hey, I'm Ryan Reynolds. Recently, I asked Mint Mobile's legal team if big wireless companies are allowed to raise prices due to inflation. They said yes. And then when I asked if raising prices technically violates those onerous two-year contracts, they said, what the f*** are you talking about, you insane Hollywood ass. So to recap, we're cutting the price of Mint Unlimited from $30 a month to just $15 a month. Give it a try at mintmobile.com slash switch. $45 up front for three months plus taxes and fees. Promote for new customers for limited time. Unlimited more than 40 gigabytes per month. Slows full terms at mintmobile.com. I'm Sandra, and I'm just the professional your small business was looking for. But you didn't hire me because you didn't use LinkedIn jobs. LinkedIn has professionals you can't find anywhere else, including those who aren't actively looking for a new job, but might be open to the perfect role, like me. In a given month, over 70% of LinkedIn users don't visit other leading job sites. So if you're not looking on LinkedIn, you'll miss out on great candidates like Sandra. Start hiring professionals like a professional. Post your free job on linkedin.com slash people today. I think, I think I'll come up with something completely different and just let that one kind of reside in the hard drive full of unrealized I, ideas. You need to have a couple of unwritten ones before you're going to get anywhere with like a good written one. You need to put the practice in. How many words is that? You're just like, how big is that novel? Okay, that was um, 60,000, 60,000, the draft. And I, I wrote the, and actually wrote with Kevin Bloody Wilson, of all people, um, his biography. So it's called Dilly Gaff, The Life and Rhymes of Kevin Bloody Wilson, uh, which was published by Alan and Unwin in 2010 um, and is still getting reprinted. And Kev still sells um, those books when he's out on tour. So that is my actual foray into being a professional writer is writing with Kev the Kevin Bloody Wilson biography. And he's got a hell of a story because he started out in Kalgoorlie and he didn't actually become Kevin Bloody Wilson until he was 37. So there's a lot of life <laughs> before that happens and he's been a teacher and, and and he's actually a really lovely, warm, funny guy in person and and the other great story when I was asked by Kev to work on the book was... I said to him at the time, can we tell the story of long service leave? And he went, absolutely. Now, long service leave, Kev and his beautiful wife, Betty, um, split up for, I think it was about three or four years uh, in the 80s and then ended up getting back together and they're still together now. So he describes that period of his life as as long service leave. My absolute favourite chapter in that book is called Long Service Leave. Things got a bit crazier. And it was really great because Kev knew that I wanted to be a published author and he was like, I can make that happen. I've got this story and I need help telling it, so let's go. And we spent, you know, hours and hours doing interviews and, um, you know, sort of unpacking parts of his life and that was the first time I had to work out, gee, which bits of a story do you tell and where do you start and, and where do you finish, you know? Yeah, especially the biography. It's like, how do you make this interesting? Well, yeah. Jimmy Barnes tells a great story about how he sat down to write the, uh, what he thought was going to be the one and only book he was going to write and he said he had 100,000 words and he looked up and he was only 12. So that's why the first book <laughs> is, is Working Class Boy and then Working Class Man uh, and, then, and then the third one, yeah. So, so that's why, because he just sort of started doing it and realised that he had, you know... A lot of stuff to say. So that's, uh, my, my, my memory of anything is useless, so... <laughs> my, if I ever read an autobiography, it would start about now probably, because I just can't remember anything past. I, I don't know. I, I can't imagine 
me doing an autobiography would, would have that much punch. I mean, who's going to pick up a book where it's like, it was 1993, I looked out the studio window in Perth as I was playing M People's Moving On Up for the 15th time that week. I don't think anyone's going to read that, George. Look, I'm sure you can draw out a couple of fun stories of life in the studio back in the 90s. Perth in the 90s, whew, that's, a, that's like a time capsule. People wouldn't even... That's like the rest of the world in the 50s. <laughs> that is... Um, I, I landed in Perth when I was 19... And, yeah, 19. And it was just, uh, it was the, the Eagles had won their first premiership the year before and Perth was just absolutely just, I mean, still is, but it was just for me coming from Bathurst and then going up to Cairns and then from Cairns down to Melbourne and going from Melbourne over to Perth and never having seen anything as big and sunny and, and it felt, because I grew up in Bathurst, Perth felt like this big city. I know, I'll <laughs> leave room for a laugh track there because, yeah. It's really not. <laughs> Especially like in the 19, early 1990s. <laughs> this is Three skyscrapers, my God. But, it, but, yeah. but, but for this Bathurst boy, it felt like... It was a crazy time back then. The buck step was coming in and people were... Gro- and the Eagles just won their first premiership. A young boy who's 19 years old just come in from Bathurst. That's right. <laughs> it's got its own story. That's right, that's right. Okay, there is a biography. There is an autobiography, you're right. Um, no, I loved it. Yeah. I loved it and I still love Perth. I still And I, I sort of went back a few times and ended up sort of, you know, doing, a I think, a two-year stint and then a, a couple of years later, a three-year stint, and then I went back a third time and stayed for a decade. So I absolutely love the place, and I still have a, a radio show over there at 96 FM, which I'm, you know, just amazed that they still let me do that after all these years. But, um, yeah, being there as a 19-year-old was just, you know, and the beaches, just like, oh, my God, this city that's, like, so close to all these amazing beaches. And then I got offered a job in Brisbane about 12 months later, and not knowing anything about Brisbane, I went, I'm going to move to Brisbane and live in a house by the beach. Yeah, good luck. Yeah, nah, that's a, that's a classic mistake about Brisbane. Everyone thinks it's, yeah. It's yeah. inland on a dirty not, river. Yeah, yeah, it's not where you think it is. I went back to Brisbane last year for the first time in a few years and it has grown a lot. I was super impressed. They've done so much development under one side of the story bridge there. There's like, oh, it's just, I actually loved the vibe of Brisbane when I was there last year. Loved it. Oh, nice. Yeah. yeah. All right. Like you, you don't don't put a bad word in. <laughs> Defending Brisbane a little bit. Okay. Adelaide uh, shit. I'll do that. There you okay. go. Okay. <laughs> there you go. Not really. And currently they're disease riddled as well. So feeling for them. I really am. It actually amazes me. Just changing the topic completely, if I may, for a moment. That um, mm-hmm. that they didn't just go right. Everyone masks now. Because have people not been watching what's been happening in Victoria and learnt the lesson that the mask thing works and as soon as there's any kind of outbreak, just everyone wear a mask? Like, am I, in a, am I in a different dimension here or is that just a really basic thing they could have done earlier this week? Even based on Melbourne, it takes a prolonged number rise before they'll bite the bullet and do it for the first time. Like for Melbourne, yeah, now forever it's going to be, oh, everyone masks on, everyone's going to be like, boop, and do it on. But I think like that breaking that seal the first time, regardless of if you've seen other people, because like we all knew it as well. Melbourne knew it about Asian countries. That you put the masks on straight away. But we didn't do it until the numbers... Yeah, I think it's like <laughs> we're that dumb as human beings. We need the personal hit to be like, oh, okay. And then after that, we'll get used to it and then be more responsible in future. I'm so impressed <laughs> with, with, with Melbourne people. I went out for a walk this morning. You know, we haven't had any, any fresh cases, thank, thankfully, for I think this is 18 days in a row now maybe that we've had zero and zero, which is fantastic. But guess what? Everyone's still wearing a mask in Melbourne. It doesn't seem to be much fighting about the mask thing. People just... And I kind of love that about Melbourne, that there's just a general feeling of... 
community here for a big city. And I think wearing a mask is part of that. Because ultimately, and this gets back to uh, something that, that, that a lot of Asian countries have known for a, long, a lot longer than we have, the wearing, wearing of the mask isn't necessarily about you. It's about protecting the person next to you. It's a bit of a selfless yeah. act, really. Yeah, exactly. That's why I think... And uh, it'll be interesting, though, because it is still mandated, so you would expect the mask to be on. But it'll be interesting once they, the mandate leaves whether there'll be just a general increase in mask wearing. And that's the one will be interesting. I don't, I don't know if that will happen, but um, maybe. I've thought about this. I've gone, okay, when the mandate's lifted, um, there'll be no need to wear one when you're out walking and you're not around people. But I'll always have one on me. And I think the times I'll pop them on are anywhere where I can't socially distance, anytime I'm in a, an enclosed space uh, packed around people and there's, you know, lifts and stuff like that, and every time I use public transport. That just seems to me to be sensible and I'm more than happy to do that, kind of from now on, really. I also don't see myself travelling internationally without popping a mask on going through an international airport ever again. Because I think one of the things we've learnt this year is about infectious diseases in general. Look, I'll let you... It's easy. You know what? You're doing a New Year's Day mind map, so I'll let you have it. Like, I wear masks because I have to, but not because, like, it is a bit of a drainer, and I'll do it, but, like, as in, if, if there's no disease is gone, unless I'm sick, unless I'm uh, actually sick, I probably will be not the one who falls into that. Even though I do love the fact that you're doing that, I'm just being honest about myself, I think, unless I'm sick, which then I'll feel responsibility. The rest of the time, I don't know, because it just, it's just annoying. But I'll happy for a government to be like, oh, there's an outbreak, everyone check your mask on, boop, straight on, done. Like, so that's what... That's kind of where I sit on that a little bit. We've got to which is great, but let's go. We're going to have... Look, I think one of the issues we've got, and I feel you, your your experience with your podcast means that you aren't in a position where you want to ruin plot lines in books. But I think uh, in the case of The Honeybee, if we want to talk about it in any depth, we're going to have to give away certain aspects of it. Um, so essentially, it's about... A th- apparently, from what I... I haven't read the book, but I've read a few analyses of it. It's apparently about a third of the way in, you realise that Sam and the reason she has had these issues with contemplating uh, suicide, jumping off a bridge and all that is because she's trans. She was born in a male body and she's coming... And because she's 14, she's coming to terms with... Well, she's going to have to deal with the dysphoria that's associated with that change happening on a physical level, which up until then maybe wasn't as clear. And then, she, And the person she meets is an old man who is also, uh, who's not going through something like that, but apparently she just, she moves in with him and that's part of where the story develops and goes from there is because they, the relationship they build and the characters around that experience. There's a lot of interesting parts to this, I guess. Um, so I guess firstly, from your point of view, did you feel a connection to the character in it for any reason because of these topics that were kind of involved in it? Is that something you felt? Sexual identity has, has, hasn't, for me personally, been an issue, but, uh, but mm-hmm. sexuality was. And I, I grew up in, in the late, you know, when I say grew up, I was a teenager in the late 80s in Bathurst, not a comfortable environment to, uh, to come out. You know, all of the kind of cultural touchstones around you were constantly letting you know that, uh, you know, it was not something that you necessarily wanted to talk about. I mean, we're talking about a period in time where people would look at George Michael and go, do you think? Maybe? Now, I challenge anyone to go back and look at the video clip of Wake Me Up Before You Go-Go and not realise right away, just by looking at the man's shorts, that he was clearly a homosexual man, and that's completely fine. But when... When you grow up in that environment, that's why I didn't come out till I was 22, basically. So there's a little bit of crossover with my own experience uh, reading about Sam. But, of course, as you point out, for the first third of the book, uh, and I deliberately didn't read any sort of reviews or anything so because I didn't want to know anything about it. I quite often go into books mm-hmm. or movies like that, trying to find out as little as I can um, before I go into it. So 
for the first third of the book, I, I thought maybe that Sam's character was going to be uh, gay and, and I was kind of relating to that. And then it kind of was beautifully and slowly revealed that this wasn't a sexual orientation thing, this was a sexual identity thing. And I remember, you know, years ago really learning the difference between those two things, not long after I came out, that, you know, sex, that, 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 yeah, sexual identity and, um, um, and sexual preference, as it were, um, is a, a two completely different concepts altogether. And it's something that I do want to kind of understand more. I don't have a lot of trans people in my life that I can talk to about this. I do have a couple, but the more I can learn about this, the, the better I am. And what a brilliant way to kind of just open your mind up is to dive into a story like this. Yeah, where it's from the character's point of view. And Vic, the, 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 the other main kind of character in the book, you know, very kind of, you know older, hetero kind of blokey, you know, calls everyone mate kind of guy. So, but, you know, without giving too much away, you kind of see the way he responds to it and it's really, you know, one of the the, the heartwarming aspects of the book. So I don't know that it really kind of crossed over into my own story that much. But, uh, but certainly, and the fact that it was set in Perth too and, you know, some of the scenes around, you know, there's, there's a great drag scene set at the gavel and Craig Sylvie told me he called it the gavel because it was his take on the court and the court is, is a big LGBT um, venue um, and has been for a long time over in Perth. So there was a lot of that that I was just, you know, the Perth aspect of it and the gay Perth aspect of it and socialising yeah. in gay Perth that sort of like, yeah, I kind of recognised a bit of that as well. I mean, I, I guess one of the things from what you've just said, though, it sounds like almost, because that's mo- it's modern now, obviously, Honey Bee, it's set around now, I'm guessing. Like, it's not set in the past, but it almost sounds like... 2017. So just it's, it's deliberately set just before marriage equality came in for reasons that will become apparent when right. you read the book. So I guess almost uh, in a weird way, and I, I, I don't know if it's as extreme, I, it's probably not, but the idea of... Um, probably where you were in terms of the movement and how it wasn't understood by a lot of people and there weren't a lot of markers for it back in the early 90s in Bathurst, which between you and me probably, I don't know what Bathurst is like now, but in my head I would think it's still probably not exactly at the front of the curve in terms of sexuality stuff. Probably still not exactly world-leading. World <laughs> yeah. yeah. It sounds like maybe in some ways that experience actually does relate to maybe what trans people are going through more recently than that. So whether it's, that, I don't know, about 2017, but maybe the, the early 2000s, tens or whatever you can you did feel a connection that way where the markers weren't as big and obvious so that's now the movement that like you can feel that same feeling about i guess like as in that that lack of understanding that confusion all that stuff yeah in a really general sense it's just anybody who's ever felt outside of something and that they don't quite fit in and and the reason you don't fit in doesn't necessarily matter but you can relate to this story just on that basis alone and i can't tell you how great the the directness of uh, of the narrative is coming through the eyes of a 14-year-old and just it reminded me just how when you are that age, there are certain complex emotional things that just kind of pass you by and you just kind of accept them as fact and, oh, yeah, that happened, and then you move on. It's not till later in life that you really intellectualise all that stuff and Craig Sylvie's done a brilliant <laughs> job of, of telling that story and making it ring true as, a, oh, yeah, that's exactly how 14-year-old me would have actually dealt with that situation. It's, you know? That's one of the most impressive things about, again, good writing and that's, that's, I think that's just remembering those instances. That's why a lot of them would have a good storage of, of memories of their own lives when they were younger because it's so hard to capture that to capture that feeling so well of what it was like to be that age where you're like oh i didn't remember thinking that stuff but now that you mention it i totally remember thinking that stuff like as in i never thought about how like you know i i used to 
double think about this thing or not stress at all about that. It's like, oh, but now that you're mentioning it, yeah, 100% relate. So yeah, that, I think that's another sign of um, good writing. But I mean, I, I guess on that note, and this is probably something I'd wonder what Craig had a view about. So I guess just for people to maybe <laughs> this late in the podcast to mention it, but Craig Sylvie, super famous uh, from an Australian author point of view uh, because he wrote Jasper Jones, which is probably one of the more well-known Australian novels of the last 15 years, probably. Um, got made into a movie. I've not read it yet. I've, I've, I've bought it for the Kindle, but I've got a big pile of books to read for the podcast series and I'm going to get to it and the new Barack Obama book and the new John Cleese book about creativity, all of which are loaded up in the Kindle when I actually get some reading time that's not involved with reading for the podcast, you know? Yeah, to be honest, that is a tiring part about having <laughs> having a weekly requirement of what you have to read. I mean, it's, it's, you're not going to have much time around that for casual reading, but I guess, well, and to be fair, uh, between you and me, I haven't read Jasper Jones either. Um, I really got to get on that. My, I've got a big gap in my head of Australian authors, which I'm slowly trying to correct, but I'll, I'll get there. So he's, he's, he's Australian author. He does that. He's based in Perth. He's not trans and he's, I don't think, is he queer? Didn't even ask in the interview. It just felt very irrelevant to even ask in the interview around all the other stuff, you know? Oh, right. Okay. Cause, it, cause it's interesting. Cause, and this is a discussion which everyone's going to have their own opinions, but I think he's actually threaded the needle amazingly, because when I was reading the reviews and stuff talking about it, he, he's not, uh, at least he's not trans, and there's been an, a big discussion about whether he could write this story at all because of him not being that and whether he's in a position to, like, where, or, or is it the classic, you know, this person's taking these people's stories and claiming it for their own from people dressing up in the wrong kind of clothing of other cultures and stuff like that. Did he, so, so that didn't, you guys didn't discuss that kind of topic at all? Did not get to it, no, no. And I was editing the podcast and I was kind of like, oh, maybe I should have asked him that. Like, and it wasn't that I deliberately omitted the question or anything. It was just, I was just so fascinated in his, because uh, I do a lot of this on the empty page, I get right into process. So I, I, can, I can go off onto conversations about what's in your writing area? Like, what are you looking at while you're writing? Or how many hours can you do before you have to stop for a break? And I get into so, so much of that stuff, I just, I, I never kind of got there in the, in the... Oh, fair enough. Yeah, no, it's because, uh, yeah, it is interesting. I kind of think that, you know, anyone can write anything. I mean, it's, it's fiction. I don't, I don't really subscribe to the idea that you have to have lived through something to write it. If it's an autobiography, then yeah, you do. But beyond that... Sure. If you've got an interest in the story and an ability to talk to people who are, you know, so he immersed himself with the drag community in Perth for a while and, and that helped him make the drag scene and the drag queen characters in the show have all the heart and soul and, and bitchiness and all that great stuff uh, that, <laughs> that, that, that makes up a, you know, a really vivid drag queen personality. You don't have to be a drag queen to do that. you just got to be curious enough to sit down with drag queens and go, tell me how it all works. Yeah, no, that's, that, that, I 100% agree. And I read some of the stuff he'd comment on about it and his view is you shouldn't take other people's stories and claim it casually. But he's like, I've did so much work to make sure that I was approaching this and engage all the right groups and stuff. And I think that's, that's the right way to do it. Where like, you're, you're prepared for people to, for this argument. You're like, no, no, I get you and I respect your argument and I'm totally for it. And here's why I've done the work to justify it essentially, which I think is the exact angle. I agree with that. And you know what? I think it's great as a Bathurst boy who grew up you know, with people going, oh, look at the guy in the window dresser of Myers there. You know what he is, right? And that kind of conversation. To get to a point where I literally didn't care about Craig Sylvie one way or the other in terms of his sexuality and didn't ask the question, that's progress because I really don't care. You know, I'm thinking about it now. Why didn't I ask? Because I don't care. It just didn't feel relevant mm. to me to, to even know that. It has no bearing on, the, on the, the, the enjoyment of the book for me whatsoever. So I guess that's progress in itself. 
you know. And we're also on, so, yeah. on TV now. You're starting to see, you know, gay couples being introduced. There's no narrator going, it's a gay couple, or this week it's lesbians, <laughs> you know. <laughs> on MasterChef, <laughs> it's, it's the gays versus the lesbians. That's right. They just show up on the screen as a normal couple, and I think that's great, that it's just not a big deal now. Because believe me, when I was a teenager, it was, and that's what kept me in the closet till I was 22. Mm. Well, I guess, and I guess that again, that's why I guess I do this show a little bit. I, that's why writing aside, which obviously he's very talented, that's why Jasper Jones is so iconic and he's such a well-known Australian author, but uh, I guess that element must have played a little bit into your love of this book potentially, just the fact that you were vibing with that discomfort and that feeling out of it, but then also it sounds like, and I'm not sure how the book goes because I didn't know it'll do, I don't want to ruin that, but like maybe that sense of... Uh, a bit more community and understanding and acceptance and... Which now has me wondering why I'm really enjoying Fiona McIntosh's The uh, the Champagne War so much because uh, I've never worn a long flowing skirt. I, I did not fight in World War I. Um, <laughs> but I'm really loving that story. And the thing I'm loving about that is that it wasn't the kind... As I said to you before, it's not the kind of book I would ever pick up, but I've just sunk straight into the um, the story. And, that you know, one of the things about that is she's, she, she marries... At the beginning of the war, her husband gifts her the, the vineyards that she's going to make the champagne from. So I love the French aspect and the whole sort of, you know, descriptions of, of beautiful cities in France and the tunnels under those cities and all that kind of stuff. And then he goes off to war and she's not sure if he's alive or dead and it's three years of them not being able to find him and there are other men trying to court her for various reasons during that time. And so you've got this situation where, you know, will he come back from war and I'm... <laughs> I'm like, oh, my God, I'm finding myself getting really invested in this whole idea of will she end up with someone else and then will he come back? And I'm just like, it's, it's, I'm sad. I mean, that's I'm a, sad, aren't I? It sounds like a real, uh, it sounds like a real uh, Penelope in the Odyssey sort of vibe, which I, I can respect as a lover of the ancient classics. Literally cannot, <laughs> I literally cannot wait to talk to, to Fiona. And I'll be honest with her, I'll say it's not the kind of stuff I'd usually read, but now that I am, you know, and I'm glad because I was afraid that I'd pick it up and, and just find it unbearable. And then what would I do, you know? Like, what if I couldn't finish the book? What if I literally was just like, oh, God, I can't, I just can't do this? Then I'd have to really fake it during the interview. So I'm really glad I don't have to. Like, yeah, I'm sure it hasn't happened yet, but I'm sure it probably will at some point, surely. Like, you're going to get someone on. It's it's, it's happened with one book, and I'm not going to tell you what it is, and it's not an episode you'll ever hear, because I actually quietly cancelled the interview, because I just couldn't, I just couldn't. Well, that's some honesty there. (laughs) Yeah, I'm not going to tell you who it is, but, but, yeah. There's an example of... It's a, it was a non-fiction book that was kind of like, you know, here's the world according to me kind of stuff and it just annoyed me when I read it and I just had so many issues with the actual book and I was like, I just don't want to fight. Part of me thought it could be really entertaining to just fight with this person and then I was like, no, I'd rather... I, I, I think if I have an author on that I don't think is that great, does it devalue the other authors that I'm having on? That was my thought. So um, I haven't told anyone that until I've just told you that, but that's the truth. There is one, no one will ever know what the book or who the author is. I will never say it, but there is one Mm. that I've just gone, I'm just going to quietly cancel this interview. Partly out of um, self-preservation and partly out of respect because, like, okay, if I don't like it, I don't need to tell people. (laughs) Here's a book that I really didn't like, that I don't recommend. Mm. Just quietly step yeah. away, you know. It's only happened the once. There's stuff that you kind of, you know, you get into a little bit and other stuff like Craig Sylvie that I'm completely into, I mean, that's going to happen. It's like songs. You don't like you don't like everything, you know. If you worked in a dress mm-hmm. shop, you don't like every dress in the shop, that'd be insane. There's obviously always going to be stuff you like more than others. But uh, I've been really, really... Um, I'm, I'm just getting back to Fiona McIntosh's book. I'm just so glad that when I picked it up, 
and I was I had this mental block of like, honestly, when it comes to movies, if I see corsets in the trailer, I'm out. <laughs> I, just, mm. I just don't do corsets. Oh, corsets. It's a strange rule I have. It's a, it, it's very strange. I got here. It's, it's very specific. <laughs> it's, I just, I just, it's just not my thing, you know. All right, no, the crown for you or anything like that. Uh, I'm probably not going to like this, and then, I, but I'm going to, going to try. I'm going to open my mind up to doing it, and uh, who knows? We might talk in a year from now, and I'm just, what are you doing? Oh, you know, reading more historical fiction. It's my thing, man. You know. Yeah, it's, it's now what I love. I just love waiting around for the men to show up. <laughs> uh, okay, well, I guess... Can I just jump in and say, you know what I like about the way you do this? And mm-hmm. um, and we're doing a Zoom call, so we're looking at each other as well. Um, I love, and I try to do this in interviews uh, for the radio, and um, it's a skill that I try to nurture all the time, and I think you're really good at it, that when you ask a question... I don't get the sense you've written a list of questions that you're sticking to that you're going to ask, that you actually listen to what people say and that informs the next question. And because I'm not used to being the interviewee, I'm usually the interviewer, this is really outside of my comfort zone, but your ability to do that makes me feel a lot more comfortable because I know that we're actually having a proper conversation here. So, well done. Yeah, the only problem is uh, I'm playing it so loose every time. <laughs> I never know where anything's going to go. I've got like four questions and the rest of the time I'm like, I don't know what's going to happen. So just... You don't go to a pub and sit down with a mate and they go, right, and unfold a scroll of questions they're going to ask you, you know? you just Unless you've done some shit. <laughs> There's a real good... <laughs> something real juicy to unpack, I guess. Um, before we finish up, I've, I've got to ask, have you got any uh, more exciting guests coming up in your podcast? I'm going to be talking to a guy called Jesse Fink uh, and he has, uh, has written a book called Pure Narco. Um, he's not the narco, he's the writer who worked uh, with the narco and it's, it's, it's if, if ever you've watched any of those kind of, you know, those Netflix shows and the whole sort of Pablo Escobar story all that, this is it in really detailed book form. Um, this guy's done an amazing job of putting this story together and I imagine put his life in danger putting putting this story together and both he and the guy that he writes about in Pure Narco are really big fans of early Elton John music and there's references to early Elton John all the way through the book. So I'm going to be interviewing Jesse shortly and I reckon we could do two podcasts, one about his book and one just raving on about early Elton John songs. So I'm looking forward to that. Speaking of Elton John, I did love... Did you like Rocket Man? I thought that was a great movie. That was such a fun time. I hated Bohemian Rhapsody. Hated oh, Bohemian Rhapsody. Nah, I, I couldn't no, get past the, 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 the fake teeth and the distortion of the storyline. And I know that the Elton John movie distorted the storyline as well, but at least it did it in a way that kind of went, oh, it's a fantasy movie, let's just go for it. You know, whereas the mm. Queen thing was 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 oh the the, the whole storyline of, of of Freddie and the timeline of of him with HIV and Live Aid it was just like oh stop it stop it don't insult my yeah. intelligence so sorry sorry to go off on a angry rant about the Bohemian Rhapsody movie at the end of such a pleasant chat but I'm easily triggered <laughs> I can tell I feel we haven't probably unpacked some of that some more but we have to call it there uh, thank you thanks very much for being on though uh, hopefully you enjoy more books and don't get any Bohemian Rhapsody books to have to go through. I loved it, George. Thanks for having me. I appreciate it. No worries. Thanks very much. Thanks for listening. If you want to help support this show and all the other shows we do here at Sans Pants Radio, then why not subscribe to SansPantsPlus.com? For as little as $5 a month, you could have access to a whole bunch of bonus shows and content. Once again, that's SansPantsPlus.com.
When you need mealtime inspiration, it's worth shopping Kroger, where you'll find over 30,000 mouth-watering choices that excite your inner foodie. And no matter what tasty choice you make, you'll enjoy our everyday low prices, plus extra ways to save, like digital coupons worth over $600 each week. You can also save up to $1 off per gallon at the pump with fuel points. More savings and more inspiring flavors make shopping Kroger worth it every time. Kroger, fresh for everyone. Fuel restrictions apply.